This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of John John Chuck? First, I'll look at the background of this case. I'll move to the timeline of the crime and offer my analysis. John Nicholas John Chuck Jr. was born in Tampa, Florida in 1989. His father was a construction worker who drank excessively. He lost his license because of multiple DUIs and was arrested for attacking John's mother. He moved away when John was three years old. John's mother had a job at Dunkin' Donuts. She used cocaine and was caught stealing. She left when John was five. John was cared for briefly by his uncle, Brian Morris, and Brian's partner, Tim Maynard. They struggled to control John's behavior. A mental health counselor told them to wrap John in a sheet, kind of like a makeshift straitjacket. This is not good advice, but it underscores the frustration caused by John's terrible behavior. John's father came back into the picture and took him from Brian. After this, John was cared for by his father and stepmother. John was arrested for the first time on May 15, 2002, when he was 12 years old. John's father had told him to clean his room. John responded by attacking his father with full soda cans and pulling his hair, before grabbing a one-foot knife and making a stabbing motion. I'm guessing that John really didn't want to clean his room. On the police report, the officer noted that John hated his father and hoped that he would go to hell. When he was in the eighth grade, John told his classmates that he was gay, which may have led to some bullying. John went to high school, but he dropped out his first year. Not long after this, he was committed to a mental hospital after cutting his wrist with a knife. Ryan and Tim took care of John after he was released from the hospital. John was attempting to earn his GED while living with them. On one night, they caught him playing video games on his laptop instead of studying and tried to take the computer away from him, but John threw it over a balcony. The computer did not survive. On another occasion, John put wax on the staircase. Tim broke three ribs after slipping and falling down the steps. John thought it was hysterical. I wonder if society will ever be free of violence inspired from the movie Home Alone. At the age of 17, John moved out of the house. He worked at a strip club making money by engaging in activities with older men. John used synthetic marijuana and methamphetamine. At the age of 18, John met a 23-year-old insurance agency manager named Michelle Kerr. When Michelle was in kindergarten, her father left her. Her mother brought an end to her own life when Michelle was 16. Michelle had a son and a daughter, but the daughter lived with relatives. John and Michelle would hang out together. He told her that maybe he wasn't gay because he was in love with her. Michelle said that she found him attractive in a Jay Leno kind of way. The two became romantically involved. On Valentine's Day, John became jealous and punctured the tires on Michelle's vehicle. I guess this grand gesture of love must have won her over because after this, she let him move in. 
John repeatedly asked Michelle to marry him, but she declined his generous offer. The couple had a daughter named Phoebe in August of 2009. Michelle was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis not long after this and was unable to work. John decided to engage in various scams to obtain money. For example, he forged checks and illegally obtained credit cards. On one occasion, he went to a cheesecake factory and pretended to fall. He filed a lawsuit for $250,000 and told people that he would never have to work again. The environment at the family home was highly unstable. In May of 2010, John was arrested for domestic violence after punching Michelle. In February of 2012, a neighbor called the police and reported that John was choking Michelle. The Division of Children and Families, DCF, indicated that there was no problem because John and Michelle were receiving mental health counseling. In reality, the couple was missing their appointments. John's mother returned to the picture and would take care of Phoebe on occasion. John would criticize his mother whenever she tried to give him parenting advice, saying, you didn't raise me, why do you want to raise my daughter? John continued to be violent, not only to Michelle, but now to his mother as well. He was arrested for domestic violence in January, May, June, and November of 2013. The incidents included pouring hot coffee on Michelle, throwing a concrete block at her, attempting to strangle her with Christmas lights, and slamming her head against a bathtub. Despite this, DCF kept indicating the danger level in the family home was low. Based on their standards for determining dangerousness, I would not be surprised if attending a dinner party with Jeffrey Dahmer qualified as only a moderate risk. At some point, John and Michelle separated. John kept custody of Phoebe, even though custody was never officially granted to him. John moved around frequently. He never lived in a residence with just Phoebe. In 2014, he stayed in at least eight different places, like with family and friends. By November of 2014, Michelle had moved in with a new boyfriend. John wasn't too happy about this. Around the same time, he obtained and lost two different jobs. He tried getting in touch with friends, but they wanted nothing to do with him. And he was having financial problems. John took a sudden interest in religion and the Bible sometime around Christmas of 2014. More accurately, one specific Bible. His stepmother's antique Bible which was written in Swedish. He carried this Bible with him everywhere. Early in January 2015, his obsession with religion grew even more intense. He tried to keep bad spirits away by spreading salt around the doorways. It's not clear why this would keep spirits away. Maybe the spirits are looking for salt, so if they find it near the doorway, they don't enter the residence. John told his stepmother that Phoebe was a demon. At this point, John had a job as a telemarketer, he talked to his boss about the Old Testament story of Abraham and Isaac. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. On January 7, 2015, John visited a lawyer to have custody papers filed. Apparently, he was concerned that Michelle was going to take Phoebe from him. The lawyer said that John was waving his hands, talking fast, and not making any sense. He pulled out the Bible and told her to read it. She noticed it was in Swedish. He said, you're the creator. You can read any language. The attorney understandably became frightened. She tried to get him focused on the paperwork. He became angry and said, don't worry about filing the paperwork. None of this is going to matter tomorrow. The attorney was intent on encouraging John to exit so that she could safely contact the police. She knew that he was going to a local church in an effort to get baptized after leaving the office, and the police could catch him there. As soon as John and Phoebe left, the attorney called the police. She told the dispatcher what happened. She also regretted not keeping Phoebe. Apparently, John had asked the attorney to keep Phoebe for a few minutes, but she refused. John traveled to the church. He said to a priest, I am the Pope, but then said, I know I am not. He asked the priest to perform an exorcism on him because he believed he was possessed. Two police officers were waiting for John when he exited the priest's office. One of them was trained to evaluate mental health symptoms. The officer determined that John did not exhibit any signs of mental illness, even though John told the officer that he had been on 30 seven different psychotropic medications, and that God had spoken to him. John then traveled to other churches, still looking for a baptism. He called the lawyer's office eight times, from about 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. The lawyer called the hotline for DCF. She spoke to a counselor who had only been working there for six months. Even after explaining the mental health symptoms to the counselor, the counselor determined that the case did not rise to the level of DCF accepting the report. At 9.30 p.m., John texted a friend, telling her that they were meant to be together. John put Phoebe in his white PT cruiser and drove over to the friend's apartment and pounded on the door. The friend did not answer. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. John left the friend's apartment and started driving on the interstate. He was going about 100 miles per hour. At 12.09 a.m., now on January 8, he attracted the attention of an off-duty police officer who followed him without turning on his lights. Suddenly, John stopped on a bridge on Interstate 275, which leads up to the northern toll booths of the Sunshine Skyway. The police officer pulled up behind him. John exited the PT Cruiser. The officer screamed, get back in the car. John approached him and yelled, you have no free will. John walked to the rear passenger door and pulled Phoebe out. The officer pointed his pistol at John and said, let me see your hands. John walked over to the guardrail 
and threw Phoebe off of the bridge. She fell about 62 feet into the water and quickly drowned. John walked back to his vehicle and drove away. After a dangerous high-speed chase, he was arrested. The jail never tested him for drugs. For a few weeks, John's behavior in jail was unusual. He did not eat, take medication, or shower. He wouldn't talk to anyone, not even his attorney. He ripped apart his mattress and banged on the walls. And he kept repeating, God is good, the devil is evil. Sometime later, John called his mother. He said he was sorry, and he couldn't believe what he did. John was convicted of murder in 2019 and sentenced to life in prison. Now moving to my analysis. There is no question that John killed his daughter. The issue at his trial was his mental health status. Did he meet the definition for legal insanity, or did he understand the difference between right and wrong? Not surprisingly, the limitations of mental health assessment were once again on display during John's trial. Mental health professionals evaluated John, but came up with wildly different conclusions. An expert for the defense said that John had schizoaffective disorder. This disorder is essentially a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Therefore, it is characterized by symptoms of schizophrenia like diminished emotional expression, disorganized speech, disorganized behavior, hallucinations, and delusions, and also has symptoms of bipolar disorder, namely depression and mania. One expert for the prosecution determined that John was not mentally ill at all. Rather, he was malingering. He was pretending to have symptoms to avoid the consequences of his crime. Another expert said that John was mentally ill, but not insane. So he had one or more mental disorders, but he understood the difference between right and wrong. The expert justified this theory by saying that if John was insane, he would have died with Phoebe. I find it curious that this way of thinking doesn't actually leave room for insanity. If the defendant is alive, then automatically he's not insane. Perhaps the clinician graduated from the Catch-22 school of mental health assessment. What do I think happened in this case? This is just a theory, my opinion. John's behavior appears to be consistent with mental health distress. A few examples, John's behavior was disruptive from an early age. He was kicked out of 12 different preschools, put screwdrivers into electrical outlets, kicked a dog, and was generally difficult to manage. John may have been mistreated when he was young, but even if he was not, having both of his parents leave him at a young age probably had a profound effect on him. Over the course of his life, John was involuntarily committed to mental health facilities on 27 different occasions. John was supplied a number of medications. In prison, he was given a total of six antipsychotics, including Haldol and Seroquel. To treat his anxiety, he was given Welbutrin, Clonopin, Gabapentin, and Cogentin. I think it's relatively clear that, at times, John's behavior was consistent with psychosis. The idea that he was malingering is almost impossible to believe, given how many times he was hospitalized and looking at his other symptoms. If John does have a mental disorder, this doesn't necessarily mean that he's insane. I think that John understood right from wrong. It appears as though the murder was premeditated. He mentioned to the attorney how none of it would matter tomorrow. 
Right before the murder, John was worried about losing custody of Phoebe. He told a paralegal, if I can't have her, then no one else will. And he threw Phoebe into the water to kill her. She was terrified of water. John wanted her to suffer. A person can be mentally ill and criminally responsible at the same time. I think that John was guilty of murder. John used Phoebe to gain sympathy for himself. People only let him live in their residences because they felt sorry for his daughter. John realized that everyone hated him, but those same people loved Phoebe. As long as he had her, he could get his way. Now moving to my final thoughts. One theme of this case is how the mental health system fails at so many levels. The system failed to provide the correct treatment for John when he was young. Many of the people who interacted with John and Phoebe had training in mental health, yet they did not realize he was dangerous. After the murder, experts assessed John, but could not reach a consensus about his mental health status. It's hard to find one action by any of the mental health professionals in this case that was actually helpful. Phoebe was surrounded by many people during her life, but functionally isolated from safety. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.